Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. But before we hear the reading of God's word, let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the ministry of his word here this morning. Father, come before you this morning. Acknowledging that your word is that imperishable seed by which we have been born again. And it is the pure spiritual milk by which we grow. And so we ask, Father, that even this morning as we are gathered across the city, that you would be with us and that you would be at work through your word, conforming us more and more to the image of the glory of your Son, that we might live in a manner that is pleasing to you and a blessing to our neighbors. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. This is the very word of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly of the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the reading of God's word. Earlier this week, I attended an online seminar for pastors, which was designed to help pastors, especially pastors in smaller churches, to develop a 90-day plan, a ministry plan for this unique time, for this time of social distancing and shelter in place. At the very beginning of that seminar, as they were uh, preparing to walk us through some of the steps of the planning, they reminded us that though our circumstances have changed, the call has not. Our call as pastors remains the same. Our call as pastors remains to proclaim him that we might present everyone mature in him. We are ministers of the word called to, to shepherd God's people towards maturity in Christ and to equip them to live as faithful disciples in, in whatever place God has placed them to the glory of his name. 
That is our calling. And though our circumstances have changed, the call has not. And I want to begin this morning by reminding you that that's not only true of pastors. Your circumstances have changed, but your call has not. Your call to to live as a follower of Christ, your, your call to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, your your call to walk in the footsteps of faith, or as the author puts it here in Hebrews chapter 12, the, the call to run the race that has been set before you, it has not changed. We are called to run well regardless of the circumstances. In fact, it's because of the ever-changing circumstances that we are called to run with endurance. You see, the race that the author mentions at the beginning of this chapter, the race that we, we considered last Sunday, that race is the Christian life. As we saw, it's not some secret plan that God has for your life that you're supposed to be deciphering like some spiritual Sherlock Holmes. You're not trying to follow the breadcrumbs or figure out the clues to determine exactly what it is that God would have you to do or to not do in any given situation. Rather, the race that is set before you are the unique opportunities that God has given you to bring glory to his name by loving your neighbor well. And yes, those opportunities look differently in our present circumstances. You can't do the things that you normally do. You you can't continue to love neighbor the way that you have in the past. But the call to love your neighbor has not changed. That is the race that is set before you. And regardless of whether we are under shelter in place or or whether we are living under more normal circumstances, that race is hard. It was hard before the novel coronavirus, and it is hard now under this pandemic. It's hard. It's a, it's a hard race to run. We, we considered some of the reasons why that race is hard last Sunday. It's, it's hard because it, it goes against the, the nature of our flesh. It goes against the, the flow of the world, and it goes against the deceitful tactics of our enemy, the devil. It is a hard race to run, and the author knows it is hard. He knows that the calling that we have received is not easy. And so therefore, in this paragraph before us this morning, he gives us three encouragements, three helps that we might run this race well. First, he says, we must consider Jesus. We must consider Jesus and his suffering. Second, we must consider our own suffering. And third, we must consider the Father's purpose in our suffering. So I want us to look at each of these three helps this morning. First, we must consider him. We must consider the suffering of Jesus. The author says that that he suffered great hostility from sinners against himself. 
Last week, we, we saw that, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the one who, who walked the road of faith before us, and he is the one who walked it all the way to its conclusion. He is the pioneer who finished the course. And because he is the pioneer who, who finished the course, we know, we know that we have a Savior. Because having finished the course, he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is now enthroned in heaven. He now sits at his Father's right hand. This is what we know about Jesus. But consider the suffering that he had to endure before his exaltation. Consider the suffering that he underwent while he was here on earth. He came to his own and his own rejected him. We know that suffering. We, we know the suffering of rejection. Jesus suffered that. We know the, the, the suffering of slander. Jesus was slandered. He was opposed. And ultimately, he was betrayed. He was beaten. He was unjustly condemned. And he was crucified. We are familiar with the, the story of his passion. We are familiar with the, the story of his suffering. Jesus suffered greatly at the hands of lawless men. Jesus suffered under sinners. And yet, despite all of his Suffering, or maybe we should say because of all his suffering, because he endured even to the end, because he did not turn to the right or to the left, because he ran the course that was marked out for him, because he submitted to his Father's will, he was exalted and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is precisely what the author wants the Hebrews to see. It's what, it's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus now sits in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he wants us to see this because it reminds us that our present suffering cannot annul God's promise to give us the kingdom. Jesus entered into glory through suffering. Suffering was his course. And if suffering was his course, then we can know that the suffering we now endure cannot undo his purpose. It cannot negate God's promise. It cannot separate us from his love. Of course, the question remains, how do we know that Jesus sits at the Father's right hand? How do we know that, that he who suffered has now been exalted? Well, if you remember, this is exactly where the book of Hebrews began. Just flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Flip back to the very beginning of this book. You'll remember that the author begins long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. 
He begins by, by reminding us that God has spoken of the Son, and he has spoken through the Son. And he goes on to say that his ministry is far superior to that of angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He says, let all the angels worship him. His angels, they are ministers of a of fire, but the Son, to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And on and on the author goes. He reminds us that, that God spoke of the Son even before he came. And he told us that he would be exalted. God told us what he was going to do. And not only has God told us what he was going to do for his Son, but he has also given us prophets and, and apostles to testify to what he has done. We, we see this in, in chapter 2. Going on, the, the author says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away for it. And then he says this, For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord himself, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so not only did God tell us through the Old Testament prophets what he would do for his son, but he has told us through the New Testament apostles and, and prophets who were, who were publicly validated by the miracles worked through them by the Spirit, he has told us what he has done. And so we have the testimony of, of the Old Testament prophets and the testimony of the, the New Testament apostles that tell us that Jesus Christ is indeed the incarnate Lord who suffered and died and rose again, ascending to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We have this testimony confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we may be certain, we may know with absolute assurance that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And if the Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of God suffered such hostility from sinners, then we must not grow weary when we suffer similarly. Consider Jesus. He suffered. He suffered greatly. And yet he is now enthroned in heaven. How much more will the Father bring us to glory with him if we rest in his good work on our behalf? Especially when you consider that the suffering that we face is far less severe. This is the second help that the author gives us this morning. First, he wants us to consider Jesus. He wants us to consider his suffering. But he also wants us to consider our own suffering. We, we see this in verse 4. He says to the Hebrews, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, earlier in chapter 10, the author acknowledged that the Hebrews had endured a hard struggle. They, they had suffered, and they had 
suffered quite a bit. We're, we're told that they had been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and had been partners with those so treated. We're, we're told that they had been imprisoned. We're, we're told that they had had their property plundered. Their, their suffering was real. But they had not yet shed blood, which seems to be a euphemism here for, for death. They had not yet given their life. This is what the author wants them to, to see. Their suffering is real, but it does not compare with the suffering of Christ, who suffered even to the point of death on a cross. But again, we ask, how does that help? How is that an encouragement? How, how does being reminded that we have not yet lost our lives strengthen us to run with endurance? Well, the idea seems to be that uh, the, the author wants them to see that their suffering is still well within the limits of what is worth it. Jesus considered the cross and the shame of the cross and the, the suffering of the cross as nothing compared to the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame of the cross. The suffering that has been set before us falls short of that which was set before Christ, because Christ suffered not only physically, but he actually drank the, the full cup of God's wrath against sinners. What we have been called to is far less. We have suffered, yes, and, and we will continue to suffer. But we have not suffered as Jesus suffered. We have not even suffered as that great cloud that surrounds us has suffered. We suffer, but our suffering is well within the limits of what is worth it. The author is gently rebuking the Hebrews for, for thinking that their suffering is too much, that their, their suffering is, is somehow greater than the promised reward. He says, consider your suffering more accurately. Even if you had suffered to the point of shedding blood, even if you had suffered to the point of, of death, it would be worth it. How much more is the, the slight and momentary affliction that you are now facing? Jesus once said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but, but loses his soul? A man can, can gain every treasure. He can experience every pleasure. He can gain the whole world. But if he loses his soul, it is a terrible bargain. It is all for naught. Well, here, in a sense, the author has given us the other side of the coin. He is saying, what does it cost a man? if he gains his soul but loses the world? What is your suffering compared to the reward? What is your suffering compared to the inheritance that is yours in the coming kingdom of God? What is your suffering compared to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for you? This is the, the mindset that Luther expresses in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when he, when he proclaims, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. 
What does it cost me if they, they take goods and kindred? What does it cost me even if they take this mortal life? His kingdom is forever. And if I am in him, his kingdom is That is what the author wants the Hebrews to see. He, he wants them to see their suffering from the perspective of Jesus' victory, of Jesus' accomplishment. That accomplishment was secured for them an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. So let me ask you this morning, how do you think about your own suffering? How do you measure it? Do you measure it against the reward? Do you measure your suffering against the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for you? Can you say with Paul, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection? Or do you see your suffering only from the perspective of the here and now? I don't mean to suggest that our suffering is nothing. I don't mean to suggest that the the loneliness and the isolation and the inconvenience that we are experiencing now, that the the financial hardships, that the, the physical hardships that we experience not only during something like this pandemic, but really all the time. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that they are nothing. They are real. But our suffering does not compare with the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. And that's key. It is being prepared for us even by these sufferings. That is the uh, the author's third point here, that is his third encouragement. First, he has is, he is called upon us to see Jesus, the one who suffered greatly, now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And he has called us to, to second, see our own suffering as, as slight and momentary compared to that glory which will be ours in the age to come. But finally, he wants us to see that it's not just that we can endure the suffering because there is light at the end of the tunnel. He wants us to see that God is actually using the suffering to bring us into glory. In our suffering, we are being disciplined as Sons. Notice what he says. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation? The, the NIV says the, the word of encouragement. Have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons or as, as children of God? He's, he's referring to Proverbs chapter 3. That's the word of encouragement that he has in mind. He, he quotes it for us here in the text. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now to hear this as a word of encouragement... We need to distinguish between punishment and discipline. Punishment is retribution. Punishment is a a way to even the score, to, to pay a debt. Punishment 
is, is what you give to one who is not forgiven. They have to pay their debt to society or they have to pay their debt to heaven. As children of God, we need to know that our punishment has been paid in full. There is now no punishment for the children of God. The record of of debt that, that stood against us, that record was nailed to the cross. And it has been canceled. It has been paid in full. We do not stand before God needing to deal with our sin. It has been dealt with once and for all through Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And yet, there is still discipline. Discipline for children, not punishment, but a a discipline that is corrective, a a discipline that is transformative, a discipline that, that, that shapes us into who we want to be. We live in a day when self-discipline, if not often practiced, is at least often praised. People want to be self-disciplined. They they want to be the the kind of people who can shape themselves. But often, it is a discipline that comes from the outside that is more effective we, we suffer because God is disciplining us. He is the Father who is shaping us. He, he tells us that, that earthly fathers do this. Earthly fathers discipline their, their children. Earth, earthly fathers discipline as they seem best. They, they do what they think is in the best interest of their children, and we respect them for it. But God disciplines in his perfect wisdom. He disciplines always for our good because he sees it all, he knows it all, and he knows what will bring about the end that he desires. And therefore the author says, we must endure our suffering as discipline, as an instrument in our loving Father's hands because when we endure his discipline, it has its full effect. If when the discipline comes, we turn to the right or we turn to the left, we we do not benefit from it. But if we endure, the discipline becomes discipline indeed. And by that discipline, we come to to participate in his holiness. By that discipline, we reap the, the harvest of peaceful fruit that comes from righteousness. And there is no greater reward than righteousness. There is no greater reward than than holiness. The the treasures and the pleasures of this life ultimately prove empty without character. But those who are conformed to the image of Christ, they know joy regardless of their circumstances. So our Father is fitting us to glorify and enjoy God for all eternity. And he is preparing us for that even now as he shapes us by our suffering. So this morning we have heard three encouragements, three three helps to run well the race that has been set before us. We've been encouraged to, to see the greatness of the suffering of the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father. 
so that we might recognize that our present suffering cannot keep us from glory. And we have been encouraged to, to see the smallness of our own suffering compared to his, so that we might recognize that, that whatever it is we are suffering, it is well worth it when contrasted with the reward that is held out to us. And we have been encouraged to see that that suffering is not only worth it, but it is actually moving us towards the reward. It is discipline from our Father. It is the tool in his hand by which he is shaping us more and more into the image of the glory of Christ. It is with these lenses that we must see and, and regard our suffering. So let me ask you, how will you make use of these encouragements this week? You will suffer some of you more than others, but, but we will suffer in the brokenness of this present evil age. How will you make sense of your suffering? I charge you to, to heed the words of the author, to consider him, to consider your own suffering, and to consider the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, that he is at work for your good. Because it is knowing that, it is knowing that, that all things, especially our trials, work together for our good. It is, it is knowing this that sets us free to hear it as a word of encouragement and to call it good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do come before you now, humbly asking that you would that you would be with us in our trials and that you would use them according to your wisdom for our good, that we might be conformed to the image of your holiness that might receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness, all to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.